You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
It's economic change that has been the focus for historians at a national or governmental or policy level. And that tends to mark out the beginning of Ireland's 60s, back in the late 1950s in the historiography. When Ireland's 60s ends is less clear. It depends what you're examining. For some, it's the onset of the Troubles. For others, the entry into the European Economic Community uh, in the early 70s uh, is a good marker. What do we mean by modern Ireland in the 60s? 20th century historians often erroneously use the term modernization and modernity as phenomena that happen in the 20th century, and it's very annoying for our 18th and 19th century colleagues. But Ireland's a very interesting case study when it comes to the idea of modernity. The processes of modernization, urbanization, industrialization, the expansion of the state into different areas of life. In the Irish case, that was often associated with English and later British rule. Processes that accelerated in the 18th and the 19th centuries. But in the Irish case, particular features of modernization have weak roots. So you have fairly limited industrialization. And when we think of urbanization, the movement of rural workers into the towns and cities, in the Irish case, that often meant emigration to British and American towns and cities. Industrialization in Britain in the 19th century was accompanied by significant population growth. While in Ireland, the famine accelerated emigration and the population continues to decline into the 20th century. But despite these differences, Ireland, of course, does experience many of the processes of modernization. In the 19th century, we <coughs> the expansion of the education system, growing bureaucracy of the state, the development of the poor law, development of communications, building of railways. So the island of Ireland is a place that becomes subject to many of the processes of modernization. And it has very strong connections to modern societies to modern societies and modern ideas and modern values, because it has this very long tradition of emigration, people coming over and back, people writing letters home. And yet it manages to retain a traditional complexion in many areas of life. And in fact, Irish culture and Irish identity are increasingly from the late 19th century, with the emergence of the Gaelic revival, premised on the idea of Ireland as traditional. Irish identity, it's increasingly premised on the idea that Ireland is a place that escapes the modern, that it was in its essence rural and community-based. And for some of this included a focus on Ireland religiosity. And this idea that Ireland was essentially a traditional society survives and underpins Irish identity for many people up until the 1960s, despite Ireland's ongoing modernisation in lots of different ways. But the self-image of Ireland as a traditional place, an anti-materialistic and stable society, it bore a tenuous relation to reality by the end of the 1950s, after the highest level of emigration since the Great Famine. And paying lip service to this image was no longer considered <coughs> desirable or feasible by the establishment. Indeed, many young people had already had to vote with their feet. So by the late 1950s, Ireland is increasingly engaging with uh, an internationalist economic and political environment. And that really required new models for the nation. There are a lot of debates in the 1960s about the suitability of Irish patriotism. Um, and those debates are given particular impetus in 1966, as the 1916 Rising is commemorated on its 50th anniversary. At a time when the nation's future is being viewed in economic and international terms, how would the, pa the nation's past patriotism be interpreted? How would its previous long history of rebellions and nationalist heroes, how would those models work? 
in the modernizing economy of the 1960s. And the ability to do this convincingly is seen as one of Taoiseach Jean Lamas, and you've seen him here on the Time cover in 1963, that's seen as one of his great achievements, that he could merge ideas about Irish nationalism with those of economic modernization. So you see the leprechaun, the curtains with the shamrocks in there, pulling back to reveal um, Irish industry. Irish nationalism and indeed uh, the Irish independence project from the late 19th century had focused on the preservation of Irish culture, uh, the Irish language, a distinctive way of life. And at the state level, this involved a strong rhetoric that promoted rural Ireland, in particular the small family farm, <coughs> as an ideal, at least in terms of the rhetoric. Irish nationalist rhetoric often characterised urban living and industrialisation as being quintessentially English, in essence equating modernisation with Englishness. But the 60s is a break with this, as the government presents industrialisation as the new national project. And the government tries to promote the idea that to be a patriot is not just to aspire to having a united Ireland or to restore the Irish language, but rather a patriot is one who works for, rather than dies for their country. So perhaps a more American idea, that's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And many Irish politicians are, of course, quoting JFK, who visits the country in 63. So attempts to reformulate Irish patriotism and to shift, um, you also see a shift in the emphasis in the, the history curriculum uh, in secondary school and primary school. That's reflecting Ireland's new orientation in the 60s, as economic growth increasingly dominates the government's agenda. And young people and their participation in the Irish economy, they're seen as essential elements of this economic growth. And this reflects, I suppose, a broader Irish alignment with international and European models and supranational bodies. Young people are expected to be active participants in the nation's future. So emigration, or passive acceptance of the status quo, that didn't shine well with these attempts to revive or reorient the Irish economy towards free trade. So while previously emigration had served as a safety valve for the unemployed, now recovery seemed impossible uh, without a labour force. So by the 60s, to be modern is no longer to be foreign. It's no longer negative, it's not to be un-Irish. And part of being modern is that you consider yourself modern. And in some ways, we can see this happening in Ireland in the 1960s. So the early 60s in particular is viewed as this dramatic watershed in Irish history, although historians constantly debate whether it is or isn't. But the reason why it's been seen that way is because the numbers emigrating really start to fall. So about 400,000 leave in the 1950s, about 40,000 a year, and that really plummets in the early 60s, although it's, it recovers somewhat, but maybe 15,000. Uh, on average over the whole de decade. But you don't have that apparent hemorrhage that you had in the 50s. And this recovery has been linked to an evolution in government policy, and the turning of the tide is usually located in 1958 and the publication of Economic Development, this uh, civil ser servant produced document, TK Whitaker, that signalled that the Irish economy would reorientate towards free trade and abandon protectionism, although that would take quite a lot of, of, quite a lot of time. It's not just this document that results in this change. There is, of course, an international uh, buoyant economy that Ireland can capitalise on, um, and there are previous legislative um, developments that allow for a more uh, foreign ownership of Irish industry from the mid-50s on. As a result of this economic growth in the early 60s and the fall in the numbers emigrating, Sometimes in the popular imagination, it's often seen that Ireland therefore modernises in the 60s and it, it catches up with its near neighbours. Um, <clears throat> and that, this is seen as a direct result of, of a change in economic policy. 
And in the historiography to date, a narrative of great men have tended to dominate how we understand social change. So personalities like Taoiseach Sean Lamaxby, um, civil servant and economist T.K. Whitaker, the Minister <coughs> of Education, Don O'Malley, who brought in free education, and even United States President JFK, they all loom very large uh, in Ireland's 60s as architects of change. Um, these changes are generally seen as positive and often viewed as having not just a social but also a psychological effect. Um, <clears throat> for me, the 60s is a period of accelerated rather than transformative economic, social and cultural change. Um, and the acceleration that you have, uh, it reflects the way in which ongoing and international processes are very much amplified by the self-conscious nature of change in Irish society at the time. And that's expressed in public debate and in political debate. And the self-consciousness of change is in part a product of this shift, this explicit shift in the national project towards a more economic goal. But it also relates to the role of new media, to popular culture, to the role of international bodies like the UN and the European Economic Community in channeling new social models and new discourses of society, new discourses of social transformation to Ireland. So it's not just Ireland that is changing. The Western world is changing. And it's talking about how quickly it's changing. And it's talking through new forms of media and different forms of technology. And these shifts mean that Ireland's complexion does change in the 60s. The image that it portrays, the image of itself, that it portrays inwards and outwards, evolves. And that social change is evident in many areas of life. And examining social change then from these different perspectives, for me from the perspective of young people, we can then complicate the idea that social change is just elite uh, or establishment driven. So then we get a better understanding, I think, of how it works. So that's why I'm interested in youth. I think it's a good way to look at the social change. I think that new understandings and the change position of young people play a key role in how Irish society becomes <coughs> self-consciously modern in this period. Um, Ireland's increasingly aligning with modern industrial societies in the economic, cultural and social sphere. And the way in which youth is conceived and the way in which it's debated in Ireland by adults often, it reveals tensions in the society. It reveals priorities in the society. So how do we consider youth then? <coughs> it's a period in the life cycle um, when a person is no longer regarded as a child, but they're not quite yet an adult. They don't have full adult status. It's a demographic, demographic category, but it's also a subjective experience. You can explain it in biological terms, social terms, and cultural terms. And I suppose key to the concept of youth is understanding what an adult is and what a child is, because youth falls in between them. Youth is semi-independent, but the nature of that semi-independence changes over time. So the reframing of youth can reflect time-specific social needs, whatever the prevailing theories are in academic or medical circles, and whatever's happening in popular culture. And that's why an examination of youth and the discourses that it inspires, that's why it's a useful lens for social change. Whether or not your young people work, whether or not they're in education or they're in emigration, whether they're engaged in commercial or traditional leisure activities, the expectations that adults have of what will happen to young people, the frameworks they establish for them, the youth organizations they establish, they all tell you a lot about that society in question. So in traditional societies, young people carry on the traditions and the, the mores of the past. But in a modernizing society, young people are supposed to represent a different future and an improved future. So in the 60s, youth is increasingly viewed as the key to a successful future. And it becomes a pivotal point around which this new project of economic growth hinges. 
their development, their education, their character, their cultural lives all take on new significance. And at the same time, Irish youths are being greatly impacted by consumer-based uh, transnational youth culture, and to some extent by an international student protest movement, which also provokes concerns amongst adults about that future. When we look at the category of youth, age does matter, but it is fluid. Current understandings of youth focus on those who are younger than the age of majority, or it implies a group in full-time education. Um, <clears throat> but understandings of the age of youth changes over time. So internationally in the West, the first teenagers were in fact those who were in their teenage years and beyond. So in 1959, Mark Abrams produces this very influential book, uh, The Teenage Consumer, it's market research about teenagers. But he described British teenagers as unmarried young people between the age of 15 and 25. And similarly in France, commentators focus on those aged between 16 and 24. And the parameters reflect the minimum school leaving age and the average marriage age. So in Ireland, my, the youth group that I'm looking at is bigger than students. It's uh, 14 up to 24. And um, so it's quite a, it's a larger group in Ireland. The average marriage age is a little bit older than 24, but the school leaving age is a little bit younger this time. So if we think of Irish youth in the 60s, who are we talking about? We're looking at young employees, school pupils, uh, people who are working on family farms, and third level students. Well, the impression of a new group of classless consumers uh, implies that genera generational difference was increasingly significant. So in the 60s, you have the idea of a generation gap. So the generations are seen as being the most significant uh, divider in these groups. But actually, class, gender, and location still remain very significant variables. And of course, they're the factors that matter when we consider educational and um, economic opportunity. And they also matter when we look at discourses on juvenile delinquency. If we look at youth in a long view, historically, you could argue that young people, particularly in rural Ireland, had long been disempowered by tradition, that they limited rights and limited prospects because of the nature of the inheritance system, where they would inherit quite late. For some young people, their education was cut short. Their earnings were necessary for the economic survival of the family. And Irish young people who worked in industry and agriculture historically received very little for, in return for their labour. From the 1930s through the 1970s, you have American anthropologists coming to Ireland to study youth subordination. Uh, they highlight the way in which the inheritance system made boys um, of young and even middle-aged men. So in a society where land inheritance and marriage marked the most important social boundaries, Young people in Ireland encompassed a very broad age range, and they were often devoid of status. And then in the 1950s, high levels of youth emigration, that really served as testimony to their disempowerment. So their departure suggested that they were expendable, and that their removal, their removal was actually necessary to preserve the status quo. Emigrants would have attained adult status more quickly when they moved, but often they stayed very tied to the family, and their remittances were important for the family economy. So in the 60s then, when we look at youth, we see the end of chronic emigration, but not its eradication. But we do see a more youthful population. And the most notable demographic change in the period 61 to 71 is the considerable increase in the number of young people. So that age group, 14 to 24, expands by 20%, by 90,000. And this is a reversal of a trend that you see from the 1930s of that cohort contracting. It starts to grow again. 
Um, the changing economic role of children and young people has been affected everywhere by two things, really. The decline in significance of the family farm and the importance of that labour, and also the expansion of education. So you see the acceleration of those two trends in Ireland in the post-war period. So just some uh, numbers. These are just basic census numbers uh, to get a sense of, I suppose, the structure of change. So you can see how the population aged 14 to 24 is rising. Uh, so it falls from 1951 to 61, and then it steadily rises. And the number gainfully occupied, again, falls from 51 to 61. Um, then it rises from 61 to 66. <coughs> but you see it starts to fall again. And that's because more of these young people aged 14 to 24 are staying longer in education. You can see agriculture, it is just falling all the time. The number in education then is rising. And a lot of the time when we think of the 60s internationally, we think of student protest and the really large numbers at university. Um, but in Ireland, the story is of second level education. That's where the expansion is. And there is some expansion in third level, uh, but you see this <coughs> from a relatively low base. So from 14,000 uh, in 1961 to 23,000 in 1971. So it's quite a lot of, it's a significant enough increase to put a lot of pressure uh, on the universities. But when we look at the population as a whole, really the story is about second level education and making that uh, available to all. This just shows then, I suppose, where people are working outside of education. And you can see that agriculture is steadily falling. The last category then is at professional services. And that decline reflects a decline in domestic service that is uh, becoming a very undesirable option for, for young women. Industry, you can see this, the different blocks refer to 46, 51, 61, 71, those different censuses. So in industry, you can see there's some pent-up demand. You can see an increase in the numbers employed in industry just after the war. Uh, but then from 51 to 61, it falls. And you can see the recovery then uh, for the, the 1960s. If you look at something like the professions and public administration, you can see that those numbers are, are growing. Uh, so white-collar employment is actually doing OK in Ireland. Um, it's really um, jobs for the, for the unskilled and skilled manufacturing where the problems are in the 1950s. So you have structural changes in the 1960s, uh, but you also have a new emphasis at national and international level on the importance of young people as an economic asset, and that gives young people a new significance. But that's not the only way, of course, in which the position of young people is changing, because internationally, youth culture uh, takes on new meaning in the 60s. Young people become incredibly powerful as uh, shapers of popular culture. And so for the rest of the paper, that's what I want to do. I want to look at a youth culture and how that changed and what that tells us about Irish society more broadly. So I want to talk a little bit about popular culture and Irish identity. And of course, the, the theme running through popular culture and Irish identity is that popular culture is a threat to Irish identity. So the threat of the foreign is a running theme in discourses around Irish popular culture. And that is long before the 60s. Uh, there are these concerns that Irish culture generally, and popular culture in particular, that they were dominated by foreign influences, and in fact that there was little distinctively Irish about them. So to show how far these concerns go back, this is um, Douglas Hyde speaking in, uh, 18, in 1892, his famous lecture on the necessity for de-anglicising Ireland. So he says, I would earnestly appeal to everyone, whether unionist or nationalist, who wishes to see the Irish nation produce its best, 
to set its face against this constant running to England for our books, literature, music, games, fashions, and ideas. I appeal to everyone, whatever is politics, to do his best to help the Irish race to develop the future upon Irish lines, even at the risk of encouraging national aspirations, because upon Irish lines alone can the Irish race once more become what it was of yore, one of the most original artistic, literary, and charming people of the world. So you can see the concern here is largely focused on English influence. The long decline of the Irish language was testament to its strength, and from the late 19th century, new trends in popular culture, which become increasingly commercial throughout the 20th century, they spur on the Gaelic revival that sees the emergence uh, of a movement to restore the Irish language, the development of the National Theatre, the Abbey, uh, and that would focus on Irish themes, take inspiration from ancient Ireland, uh, an Ireland of myth and legend, like Fiona Coogan and Dufina. So Hyde, Douglas Hyde, is a, a founding member of the Gaelic League. He described the irony of Irish people claiming to hate the country at which every hand's turn they rush to imitate. So very long-standing concerns about foreign influence. The concern is not, though, just that it will usurp or dominate some sort of native culture or indigenous culture, but rather that these foreign influences, on top of all that, that they would corrupt, that they would be morally dubious. And you can see that very clearly then expressed in the censorship legislation of the 1920s, where the focus is on sexual morality and information about contraception. And by the 1920s, it's not just English culture that is a concern. American popular culture was just as much a concern. So American jazz and swing creates a fever of, around dancing amongst Irish youth, and you see the growth of commercial dance halls, and that provokes then clerical censure and legal regulation. You've anti-jazz campaigns in the 1930s, launched by Catholic clerics and cultural nationalists. And in the 1940s, we have Richard Devane, who's always talking about young people. He's lamenting Irish youth's um, enthusiasm for the cinema. He says, we cannot be sons of the Gael and citizens of Hollywood at the same time. There can be a tendency to think about <coughs> both British and American forms of popular culture as being welcomed by ordinary people, particularly young people, but then despised by more traditional bodies like the Catholic Church and, and the GAA. But there are fairly ambiguous attitudes uh, to foreign influences in the 20th century, particularly by the 40s and 50s. American films and music would serve as the focus for fundraising events for Catholic parishes. And even the GAA, his promotion of Gaelic sports was supposedly matched by a promotion of Gaelic culture they would often fall foul of their own rule against running foreign dances. And by the 1950s, they're being criticized for allowing their members to run foreign dances up and down the country. And at their annual congress in 65, one delegate revealed the popularity and the commercial necessity of having such dances, because he said small clubs would go out of business if they weren't able to have uh, these kind of foreign dances. So that's a bit of talk about popular culture, but what then of youth culture and its particular manifestation in this <coughs> period? Youth culture, like popular culture, was seen as being imitative in Ireland. It didn't have any um, indigenous roots, and it was seen as this threat to, to Irish culture and to public morality. Youth culture is a slippery concept that intersects with popular culture, leisure, and consumption. Um, and we see this as cultural and technological forces um, and commercial forces really combined from the 1920s on as they try and commodify the social and cultural lives of young people from the fashion that they wear the music that they listen to. And agency and autonomy of young people, that's an integral feature of youth culture that academics are always trying to, to find. Um, in the 60s, it can be difficult to isolate the agency of the young people from the influence of the adult um, because of the power of media and market forces at the time. Youth culture is not invented in the post-war period, but the expansion of mass culture, uh, the advent of television, 
it allows for a synchronicity in how people uh, in the West are experiencing youth culture, and it allows for further com commercialization of youth culture. So I think its character is altered, and its impact is broadened in that period. <coughs> so it's arguable that in the 50s and 60s, new developments in youth culture and the expansion of a market for the associated products, fueled by new developments in technology and rising living standards, that they're particularly rapid. So there is something interesting happening with youth culture in this period. The key to that is television and also the transistor radio, that you could have your own radio. Um, and you could have, in America, the car radio is very important, but that people could have personal radios <coughs> rather than just one for the whole family. Youth culture, of course, increasingly then encompasses lots of different subcultures characterized by different styles, values, and musical tastes. And the subcultures often have their origins in the everyday, in the everyday lives of working class young people. But then those stylistic elements be quite quickly co-opted by commercial interests um, and then sold on to ever larger numbers. Despite the fact that adults are heavily involved um, in the production of youth culture, and in the market forces that promote it. Youth culture really plays on the idea of generational difference. So it presents the social category of youth as being fundamentally different to childhood and adulthood. So youth is increasingly recognised as an important cultural force and consumer group in its own right. So by the 60s, Irish young people are well placed to engage with an international youth culture, and in many ways, they do make it their own. And so I have a quote here from Father Walter Ford, who's involved in youth work and he's involved in the Burn Kerry Summer School. He's an, active, an activist in the field of youth welfare work. And in 1967, he's expressing concerns about the influence of English teenage culture in Irish youth. And this being, of course, a very long concern. He says, first fashions and clothes and hairstyles increasingly follow the English trends. The amount of money spent on them, um, by them on records, dances and clothes is a new feature of Irish life. Drinking among them too is becoming more common. Second, the recent popularity of beat clubs in Dublin, where all 11 were opened in the last 18 months, shows their desire to have a recreation of their own. Finally, the increasing distances that many of them frequently travel to dances, their rather expressive response to pop idols, their apparent lack of energy for anything else, the decreasing interest in sport, which is being replaced by mass passive recreational activities, are all alarming. <laughs> Now, 10 years previously, the British magazine Everybody's Weekly had expressed very similar concerns about the, Ameri the influence of American youth culture on British youth. And they asked, are we turning our young people into little Americans? So their own needs, just like Walter Ford's, reflects how fluid and international youth culture is in the post-war period, or really in the 20th century. <laughs> Subcultures such as the mods could originate with a small group of people in England early in the 1960s, but the associated music and fashion could travel very quickly. And that could allow for the emergence of Irish mods, who could buy mini skirts or slim fitted trousers in Even Stephen, a mod shop located over Club Arthur, a beat club uh, in Dublin city centre. In many ways, the concerns provoked by new forms of popular culture in the post-war era reflect a very long and continuous debate. But there are new elements to consider. The post-war economic growth, particularly from the late 50s, early 60s, it results in higher levels of disposable income. And you also have an increase in, in leisure time and access to an expanding uh, entertainment and leisure industry. You also have more young people. Um, and they're, they have different, they have some different employment opportunities. We don't see a big increase in the number of people employed in Ireland. The numbers that fall in agriculture are not replaced really by numbers in services or in manufacturing. So it kind of evens out. 
but people are in wage employment more than they were. They're in regular wage employment, which is not which is what you often don't get uh, on the on the family farm. So because people have their own wages, then that enables them to transform into teenagers in, in a consumer sense. So popular leisure and expression of the self through consumption gains new significance in this period. And I suppose the emergence of this commodity-driven youth culture um, is really epitomized by uh, the international popularity of American rock and roll. Young people were increasingly referred to as teenagers, and teenagers were seen as key economic actor actors. But underlying the idea of the teenager was, of course, the concept of adolescence. And adolescence is a 19th century con concept, which indicated how um, this was a period of identity formation, that was a period of uh, vulnerability for young people. So therefore, there's a lot of concerns that young people will be manipulated by the market. So rock and roll music, films for teenage audiences, fashion and TV, they're all deemed to be negative influences on young people as they're in the process of forming their personality. So adult fear is that teenagers are being manipulated and corrupted by commercial interests. Um, that aligns with concerns about juvenile delinquency, both sexual and criminal, from the late 1950s. So in the 50s, the concern is really about working-class teenagers who are working and have disposable income. While towards the end of the 60s, the concern is much more about middle-class students who are seen as harbingers of, a, of a, an international counterculture, which particularly comes from the United States. The term teenager originates in the United States, so new developments in youth culture could align with European fears of Americanization. But cultural transmission doesn't work just one way. So by the 60s, you have a distinctly British youth culture that emerges. And that was influenced by American cultural forms, but it was exportable in its own right. So that fluid nature, the complex nature of cultural transmission, has to be taken into account as we started up the youth culture in the Republic of Ireland. The adaptation, the blending of the foreign and the familiar, these are key features of youth culture in the West. What happens in Ireland in terms of Irish youth culture is, is fairly unexceptional in that way. So self-appointed guardians of Gaelic culture and Catholic values, they've long claimed that modern youth culture had no indigenous roots in Ireland. But the adaptation of British and American music and its infusion with an Irish sensibility uh, by show bands, as well as the emergence of an international subculture that revolved around folk music. What you're seeing is the increasing complication of the idea of what is foreign and what is Irish in the 1960s. We're seeing new ideas of what it means to be Irish that ultimately makes censorship or isolation or the protection of Gaelic culture less feasible but also less desirable. So rock and roll music transcends international borders in the 50s in the way that jazz had in previous decades. So it first emerges in the United States where it's consumed by affluent American teenagers, and then it penetrates uh, Britain and Ireland and Europe. So rock and roll is associated with deviance and subversion, and something which seemed to be confirmed by the so-called riots at Rock Around the Clock when that film was shown. When you read the Irish newspapers for the riots, it's usually overcrowding, people dancing <coughs> in the aisles, somebody throws something small, it doesn't seem to be anything too violent really. Rock and roll penetrates uh, Irish ballrooms in the 1960s, but of course what's interesting is that the form of rock and roll is one that is accepted by the mainstream and the establishment, and it's not associated with deviance and subversion. Because in the 60s, show bands play rock and roll music, and they perform in these ballrooms around the country. So show bands perform cover versions of popular styles, along with Irish songs, 
and they offer their audiences a saying that was contemporary, yet in a way uniquely Irish. They travel around the country and they give many Irish young people, particularly those in rural Ireland, an opportunity to hear their favourite songs performed live. So the show band scene represents an Irish adoption and adaptation of British and American subcultures. And the arrival of the show band scene is an, is an all-island phenomenon that originates uh, in the north and it transcends the border. So show bands normally had up to eight members and they replaced larger orchestras, uh, which have traditionally provided music for dancers in ballrooms. So they could have up to eight members and they would normally have a brass section as well. Well, the fact that they were merely cover artists imitating British and American music, that would render them unfavourable to some protectors of Irish culture who thought they weren't representative of Gaelic culture. But many actually view the show bands with national pride because despite their imitative character, in themselves they represent a national phenomenon. And a woman from Limerick makes this very clear in her letter to the Evening Press in 1965. She's voicing her disgust at the injustice done by an Irish DJ to one of Ireland's finest singers, Dickie Rock. She says, I know from my own friends, and I'm sure there are countless other people all over the country who feel as I do that Johnny Mass's recording of Every Step of the Way should not be played while one of Ireland's leading vocalists has this record on the market. This kind of thing is certainly not happening in England, nor in America for that matter. Also listening to Radio Luxembourg every night, I hear one, perhaps two Irish records being played, and quite late at night too, for fear it would interfere with the sales of their own. One must hand to them anyway, they are at least loyal to their own, be they good or bad. So for this letter writer, the Irish identity of Dickie Rock is now at all complicated by the non-Irish songs he's singing. So you can see the interaction between the international uh, and the importance of the local. Those in show bands were largely male, they were young Irish males, they are providing entertainment to live Irish audiences. The show band scene spawns a youth magazine, it contributes to the formation of Irish ident teenage identity, and the bands and the dance halls that they spawn provide significant employment opportunities. And the clean-cut image of show bands sits very comfortably with other forces of Irish social life. The Spotlight and New Spotlight, Spotlight, Spotlight magazine, the publications which follow the scene, they set the right moral tone. Um, at a time when no self-respect and seizure ever left home on Sunday night without the Pioneer Inn. That's a reference to the Pioneer Abstinence Association. That's a quote from Vincent Power. But of course, show band gigs normally start late because a lot of people are in the pub beforehand. So traditionalists berated show bands for their imitative character playing British and American music. They're in essence promoting foreign culture. And you see a similar kind of discourse happen in England when critics complain that English uh, music is a mere imitation of American music. You see British pop stars in the late 50s bridging that gap between the novelty of rock and roll and the surviving British traditions of variety in show business. People like Lonnie Donegan and Cliff Richard. Tommy Steele was Britain's first homegrown rock and roll star and his success was built on musical versatility. Like show bands, he could play anything. Um, and that he, he represented traditional values. He had a love of his native community and his family. And it was that combination that secured his success because Tommy Steele quelled any fears about the inherent immorality of teenage culture. That blending of traditional musical styles, <coughs> the foreign and the familiar, that's integral to the success of acts like Cliff Richard and Tommy Steele. And the show bands are pretty similar. The One-Nighters, uh, this is a 1963 film made about the most popular show band, the Royal Show Band. It portrayed members as humble and hardworking young men who missed their families while they were on the road. And they were inclined to have a pint of milk after the show. And their success had led to British and American tours, but when they were interviewed, they wanted to stay at home. They wanted ordinary lives, the lives they were used to. They're shown going home to their families each night. 
uh, they're captured by the, the documentary maker talking about the importance of family life over playing a friendly card game on their tour bus. For much of the 60s show bands are this great source of national pride, as despite their images of character, they represent a national phenomenon. Irish youths playing music for Irish dancers. But their inherent Irishness and their adaptation of an international youth culture in a way that did not transgress any traditional Irish values, that wasn't all that made them successful. As Irish identity evolves, their success rests on the fact that they are playing contemporary music that has foreign and urban roots. And in the 60s, both the establishment the establishment forces are becoming much more open to embracing foreign industry. Of course, not everyone on a Saturday night is going to see a show band. So this is the second scene I want to talk about, and then I'll just talk about the folk scene and I'll draw some conclusions. The nationality of show band performers and their proximity to audiences, that really solidified their Irish identity. But the origins of the music that they played was, of course, more complicated. The so rock and roll was undoubtedly American, but the origins of British beat music um, and folk music uh, that sees an international resurgence in the 60s, that's even more layered. So Keith Gilhart suggested the possible significance of a large Irish emigrant community in Liverpool, as well as the more obvious transmission routes of US Army bases, sailors working for US shipping companies, as this being kind of a melting pot for the creation of beat music out of the city of Liverpool. The Beatles signal a significant rebirth of rock and roll, and their popularity then produces numerous beat groups around the world. So the beat groups would be smaller, often four members, and these are guitar bands. Both the beat scene or the group scene that originates in the UK and the folk scene, they're significant competition for the Irish show band scene. But the beat scene has an alternative style. So Jerry Smith is a musicologist he says it is aesthetically opposed to the values that the show band scene was based on. So where show bands were organised as a business, the beat scene had from its inception artistic, specifically romantic aspirations. So they're smaller than show bands, they're guitar bands, and they don't have a brass section. So they're an alternative to the very highly visible show band mainstream that is being championed by most of the mainstream media. There's a show band show on RT. Some Irish beat bands play the same music as show bands, imitating international acts, but they have a different sound. They lack the variety elements, <coughs> they wore different clothes. Their choice of song reflected a different value uh, criteria. Um, <clears throat> but there's significant range within the, the beat band scene. Um, some bands would play things that the kids liked, they'd play things that were popular, but others composed their own songs and were original bands, and that's something that show bands never did. <clears throat> Those who were involved in the show band scene were quick to defend the domestic industry from possible interlopers. So the Beatles received a very underwhelming uh, response from Spotlight Magazine, because Spotlight Magazine's commercial interests totally intersect with the show band scene. They described the Beatles as having an offbeat hairstyle, with a zany sense of humour, that they hoarsely chanted their own offbeat compositions. While their originality and the hysterical reaction they provoked from fans generated some unease, the Beatles initially were presented as four clean-cut, well-groomed Liverpool lads. So some of the beat bands kind of followed that model of respectability. But beat bands um, are considered much more subversive uh, in the Irish context. So Frank Boylan, who was in a beat band, he described the responses that him and his bandmates would get. He said, people have the false impression that if you wear long hair, you're some sort of teddy boy. Most of the fellas I know are just the same as any Irish young lad. They take an interest in Crow Park, elections. Uh, flat and such. 
but beat bands get a more negative response. And that reflects a widespread disapproval of many of the British bands. So whereas previously an unofficial moral standard had existed for professional uh, popular musicians, by the mid-60s, groups like the Rolling Stones not only refused to conform, but their image is based on their non-conformity. So there were some clean-cut Irish beat groups, but at the other end of the spectrum you have the Rolling Stones and the Who. B.P. Fallon, um, the well-known uh, DJ and broadcaster, he conducted an interview with Pete Townsend from the Who for New Spotlight magazine in 66. Fallon said he was reluctant to publish it because of Townsend's frightening outlook. Townsend's use of drugs had landed him in trouble with the police in England, and the Who guitarist informed readers that for him to smoke marijuana or take pills was like having a glass of bitter to the bloke down the road. To many readers who would have been mineral drinkers, this would not have provided much solace. And Fallon's hesitancy could probably mirror the conservatism of much of the audience and their opposition to the values which underpinned many of the new forms of self-expression uh, that emerged in the 60s. Even the lyrics of some beat songs were seen seemed unsuitable. Turn Out the Light, which is a friendly kind of pop tune by the Creatures, was banned by Radio Air in the 66 because of the lines, Turn Out the Light, dear, let's see what you can do. You say, all right, dear, I'm going to take my cue. It can be banned on Radio Air, but of course, Young Irish listeners can still listen to it on the pirate radios. So the beat scene emerges in the suburbs where local bands get opportunities to play in parish halls, tennis and rugby clubs, but then they find opportunities in the city centre, in Georgian basements. Uh, the number five club on Harcourt Street, the Moulin Rouge and South Great George Street, the Cavern Club on Main Street, and there's a number of scenes around the country. The last scene then I want to just mention is of course the folk scene, and that's another threat to the commercial dance hall where the show bands play. They're located in pubs and lounge bars where alcoholists alcohol serve. By the 1950s, folk music becomes an adjunct to left-wing politics in the US and ultimately part of protest movements. But of course, it's influenced by older Irish and British musical traditions, in particular the ballad, which in turn influenced the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Macon, Irish emigrants living in New York. And they would arrange Irish folk songs for group performances, adding in a guitar and a banjo. And they performed at clubs and cafes in Greenwich Village with the likes of Pete Seeger, John Baez, and Bob Dylan, future international heroes of the folk revival. Dylan even incorporated several Clancy Brothers songs into his early repertoire. In 63, they're on the American chat show, The Ed Sullivan Show, <coughs> who play at the White House when JFK is elected. Uh, and then Clancy style groups pop up all over Dublin. Um, <coughs> and I suppose there is a spectrum as well, a bit like the beat bands. You have very respectable bands like the Clancy Brothers in their Aaron Jumpers, and then you have the Dubliners, um, who are considered to be a little bit more subversive. So their popular ballad, Seven Drunken Nights, is banned by Radio Air and First Body Contest, but it's given high rotation on the Pirates on, on Radio Caroline, where it's played alongside Jimi Hendrix and the Kings. While the values that were associated with modern youth culture seem to jar with traditional Irish culture, the folk scene operates in a, a more complicated space, because, of course, Radio Air had long promoted uh, the genre. Uh, and uh, the flat, flat on the Heron, uh, organised by folks, Kilfrey Heron, and that sees a resurgence as it capitalises on uh, folk, the popularity of folk music within youth culture, although not without controversy. So, just a concluding remark, I suppose, um, what does youth culture in the 60s tell us about social change in Ireland in this period? If you look at the musical charts, you've got a mixture of British, American, and Irish acts. The show band scene demonstrated how international youth culture that it could be negotiated and adapted to incorporate traditional values. But its eventual demise demonstrate that this adaptation, this blending of the foreign and the familiar, is becoming increasingly unnecessary. 
British and American music remained popular amongst Irish youths in the 1970s, but you also see music rendered in folk and rock with a distinctively Irish component that materialises. Original bands with roots in folk and rock, such as Tim Lizzie and the Horselips, marked the emergence of a distinctly Irish popular music, and people then would suggest that bands like U2 and the Cranberries, and that would prove incredibly influential internationally, owed their roots to that sound. So in the late 60s, Ireland is trying to align with the rest of the West, politically and economically, rather than isolate itself. And for some, there is a cultural cost, the loss of a Gaelic culture. But as you can see from Douglas Hyde's remarks in the 1890s, those concerns were very long-standing. Maybe we should look at it in a different way. That while the show bands were imitative and represented this blend of the foreign and the familiar, out of the folk and beat scene, we see the evolution of Irish popular culture in terms of a new type of rock music that in turn would develop popular music elsewhere. So from that interaction with the so-called foreign, you see the production of a distinctly Irish sound. So I hope this paper has given some insights into the significance of youth and youth culture and young people in the social change of the 60s, so that we can see how change comes from below and not just from above. <coughs> Thank mm -hmm. you.